as we continue worshiping together today, receive these words of scripture from Jonah in the first chapter, beginning with the first verse. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. The sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them so. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, please rise as you are able receive these words from the gospel according to Luke, the 24th chapter, beginning with the 36th verse. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts 
be acceptable to you, for you, O God, are our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. For some years now, I have been ruminating on joy. I've thought about it a lot. I've written about it a lot. I've wondered about it. I've bought books on it. I read a lot of poetry about it. I ruminate on joy, what it is and how humans experience it. And one of the things that I have come to believe, my intuitive spiritual sense, is that joy in general does not get its full due. It's not that we don't appreciate joy when it appears. It's just that there's so much of everything else clawing for our attention. And most folks that I know would admit, if they're honest, that the painful stuff in life, the hurts, the failures, provoke their inner spin cycles much more consistently than the graces and the joys of their lives. And I've been known, I I don't know about you, I have been known to cogitate for days on the things that aren't working well, on the injustice in the world, on the, and this one's the worst one, on the failures, real or perceived, in my own life, (laughs) right? All the while, oh, I I can ruminate on that forever. I mean, I just chew on it, and it chews on me. All the while, I am largely ignoring any little accomplishment. I miss the good stuff, because I'm so focused on the struggle, the hurt. I miss the extraordinary beauty and power and grace and new life all around me. So often, perhaps you can relate. There is, of course, good reason to get stuck in some of the hard stuff. The current state of the planet, the world, and the human family as a whole, it's depressing. It's hard. And those of us who believe in freedom and in peace and in justice chant again and again that we cannot rest until it is manifest, those gifts are manifest on earth as in heaven. And that can leave us feeling like we can't release the heaviness. We have to hold it. We have to feel it. Like we have to to make sure that we aren't giving ourselves any breathing room from the pains of the world. We might feel that we can't lighten up and enjoy the good things of our lives because not everyone can enjoy those same good things in their lives. There's something beautiful about that because it means we care. But it's, it's a difficult way to live if you really want to live. The first week of June 2020, just after George Floyd's murder, 
I preached a sermon in which part of the reflection was this. God is with us in the beautiful, complicated mix of human experience where we as humans can hold many different realities, concerns, and ideas together at one time. Human life does not exist in either or categories, but is always both and, and, and. A member of Foundry reflected back to me following that sermon that he and his partner had not decorated the outside of their home as they normally do on the first week of June for Pride Month because they were worried it didn't seem appropriate. And that after the sermon, they sort of talked together about it and they realized that they could feel, experience and take seriously both pain and conviction about racist brutality and they could experience and celebrate joy and pride as they gave thanks for the blessing of their own God-given identities and natures and the love that they share. They could hold both of those things at once. And so they put up their pride stuff alongside their Black Lives Matter banners. Poet Jack Gilbert puts the point in clear relief, writing, we must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world to make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. Sometimes, oftentimes, it's difficult to let happiness or joy get its full due. It's hard to let anything other than the injustice of the world get any of our attention. But part of our prophetic witness is to resist allowing the heaviness of life to starve us of one of the beautiful gifts of God. Part of our prophetic witness is to let there be joy, to acknowledge it, to welcome it when it appears. Today and over the next several weeks, we're going to explore the story of Jonah that certainly is filled with all sorts of human realities, feelings, choices, consequences. It's a both and, and, and kind of story that provides us with plenty to think about. So through August, we're going to hang out with Jonah. And along the way, we'll watch carefully for where joy wants to get some attention. Today, I am just going to give us a little background on the story. I'm going to set the scene. We're going to look just at the first chapter. The book of Jonah is comprised of only four chapters and is a rich 
wisdom parable, layered with symbol and satire. It is truly the only full comedy in the Bible. Jonah, like any good satire, is both entertaining and sharp in what it's critiquing. While the book is not chronicling an actual historical event, it is fiction. It may refer to the prophet Jonah, who's mentioned only once in scripture elsewhere, in 2 Kings chapter 14, and that Jonah was a prophet who supported the northern kingdom, Israel, in the 8th century BCE. Um, And Nineveh is a large city in Assyria, which was the nation that brutally conquered the northern kingdom during that period. So you got the character Jonah and Nineveh in Assyria as having this historical resonance. So that kind of gives us some background to some of the dynamic of the story. In the book of Jonah, which was written a couple of centuries later in the sixth or fifth century BCE, the author was speaking to a Jewish people who were living toward the end of the Babylonian exile and newly returned to their homeland, Israel. And they were struggling to navigate being a minority population uh, around all the, in the midst of the nations surrounding them. There were tensions and concerns about assimilation, losing their own sense of identity, religious and cultural. And these religious and tribal and national tensions are part of the backdrop for the story. The tension there is palpable. The story itself opens with the call of God, God calling Jonah to go and to cry out against the wickedness of Nineveh. And Jonah's response to God was, in essence, hard pass, I'm not gonna do it. Jonah not only flees, he flees in the exact opposite direction. If you look at a map, of where God called Jonah to go and where Jonah turned to go, it is in the exact opposite direction. And not only that, but he decides he's gonna take a boat to Tarshish, an ancient seaport, probably on the western coast of Spain, what was considered at that time the very end of the earth. So just like all the prophets ever, Jonah tried to get out of his call, but he took it to a whole other level. As I said at nine o'clock, his dial goes to 11. (laughs) Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes! Okay, I have to have at least one who gets my cultural cue. All right, so Jonah, Jonah boards a boat at Joppa. And then the hurling begins. In chapter one, there's a Hebrew verb uh, that shows up three times. It's translated into English differently, but it really means hurl. And I don't mean like a certain kind of hurl. It's like hurl or cast, like to throw something. And and, and God is the first one who hurls a great wind upon the sea and stirs a mighty storm. And when the sailors' appeals to their gods don't get them anywhere, they hurl their cargo 
overboard. And during all this hurling, Jonah found a nice, cozy spot to nap, perhaps feeling smug for having escaped God's difficult call and happy to let others deal with consequences. When asked to call upon his God to save them, Jonah, notice, doesn't respond. I don't really understand that but it's a thing. Jonah didn't say anything. The going understanding, by the way, in those days was that if bad things happened, it was the result of someone making their God angry. So the sailors decide to determine who on board is the guilty party. And they do that by casting lots. Now, that is simply an ancient version of throwing dice or drawing straws. And it was often used to make decisions like this and to discern things like this. And of course, in the story, the lot fell on Jonah, who answers then all their questions and admit that he is on the run from Yahweh, the creator of all things. When they asked what they should do, Jonah told them to what? Hurl him overboard. They didn't want to do it. But when their best efforts failed, hurl him, they did. I'm not going to go deep into this first chapter. There's not time today. But an interesting thing to note about this opening to our story is that even as Jonah was defying God, full-on defiance, something rather remarkable happens. At the beginning, in verse 5, the sailors were fearing the storm and they were crying to all their various gods. But by the end of the story, the sailors are crying out to and fearing Yahweh. Notice, and I think this may pop up again later in the story, notice that even when he isn't trying, Jonah brings about a conversion and and a connection with God. Jonah does not get to witness this, the joy of this thing, because by this point, he is in the depths of the now calm sea. And what happens next is the story for next Sunday. Sorry about that. Um, I'm not sorry that we're going to get to hear Pastor Jonathan preach that piece, his first sermon at Foundry. I hope you'll join us. I just have a few very brief thoughts about this opening scene. First, the obvious, we cannot hide from or outrun God. God is with us means God is with us means God is with us. In all times, in all places, no matter whether we're responding to God or running from God, God is with us. Second, sometimes our avoidance of what we know we are called to do, that we need to do, stirs up proverbial storms. That is, it can cause, our avoidance can cause things to be worse than they would have been had we just taken a breath and trusted God to help us do the hard thing. Third, God can be up to something through our lives even when we are making a real mess of it. That's an encouraging thought, isn't it? 
And finally, I know it's difficult to receive a call from God to do a thing that you really, really don't want to do. I, I get that. But what I've discovered in my own life and through relationship with others is that not running away, but turning toward the call, even if that turn is just with the smallest curiosity and openness, will bring you face to face with new life and surprising moments of joy, even in the midst of difficult, complicated human moments and experiences. And for the very last part of our reflection, I'm going to invite us to leap forward with the time travel. Some centuries forward to Jerusalem, where the disciples of Jesus, all of whom have answered a call and now are gathered in Jerusalem after the trauma, this is after the trauma of Jesus' crucifixion, and they've received the proclamation of Easter from Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women. And they have just literally just received the testimony of those who walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and recognized him in the breaking of the bread, and then in that moment, Jesus appears among them, and Jesus speaks the word, embodies peace. And what do the disciples experience? Terror and doubt. Jesus is there in flesh and blood, and it says in the text, while in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. Jesus says to them, you got anything around here to eat? And I love this moment because like I do, I imagine Jesus saying to the disciples, his dear friends, in the midst of all their fear and doubt, I hear Jesus saying to them, y'all, there's joy here. Do you see the joy? Why are you focusing on fear and doubt? Lighten up new life. Resurrection life is possible right in front of you. I am with you. Give in to the joy. And then let's eat. That's the word for us moment after moment, day after day. New life is possible. God is with us. Let yourself receive the joy and let it fuel and feed you. Amen.